the Indigenous Connection Show. My name is Randy Lynn and I'm the host for the Indigenous Connections radio show. Join me as we discuss various topics in regards to First Nations culture, arts, ideologies, and spirituality from both a historical and contemporary point of view. Randy Lynn at Sagasin Mastasini Nihia Uchini Alaklubisha Berda Egwa Ni Wigan. Hello everyone, welcome to the Indigenous Connections radio show. I'm your host, Randy Lynn Nanamu Candelight, and a little bit about myself. I'm the eldest of three children, and my family originates from the Big Stone Cree Nation in northern Alberta, Treaty 8 territory. However, I spent most of my youth growing up in Lacklebish, Alberta, as my family still resides there. And my educational background is in Aboriginal mental health, as well as Indigenous social work. Uh, I consider myself very fortunate in the fact that I was able to be raised around my culture, uh, my First Nations culture, my Cree culture, and my culture has been something that has highly influenced my life, the way I look at things around the world, and obviously influenced my career as well as my education. Having my culture play such a valuable role in my life, I feel very fortunate again, to have the opportunity to share my culture every week with you guys through this uh, show. So each week we will be discussing various topics in regards to First Nations culture, including art history, ideologies, and spirituality, both from a historical and contemporary point of view. And I always make a point to express why I utilize that word contemporary, because there are many misunderstandings and stereotypes that First Nations people, Indigenous people of this area, of this land, are relics of the past, that we are stuck in the past. Um, and there was a period of time that people perceived our culture dying out, but that did not happen. Uh, we are evolving. We are not relics of the past. Yes, we hold on to our past, our teachings, our history very closely, near and dear to our hearts, but we are evolving and we are utilizing the resources available to us during these contemporary times. And you can see this in our art forms and the way we dress, the way we adorn ourselves, etc. In my hopes that by having these kind of conversations with you, with explanations, we can start to create a dialogue and help to break down stereotypes and misunderstandings and what I like to call building a metaphorical bridge between the non-Indigenous and Indigenous communities as there's still so much misinformation and so much misunderstanding out there. Um, for example, check the comment section on any social media post in regards to First Nations people, and you will see how much anger and frustration and misunderstanding and so much is still happening in today's society. So this is why I do this. This is what motivates me to do that. Um, so today's topic is a continuation on our Okamawa Square series. The Indigenous Connection Show. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Indigenous Connections radio show. And we are going to start our seventh episode of the Okamawa Square series. So just to recap, Okamawa Square loosely translates into English as boss lady. Some people say chief's, li- chief's wife but I feel a boss lady sounds more empowering. Um, 
And the reason why I chose this topic is because historically, as indigenous people, uh, we identify as a matriarchal society, meaning we hold our women in very, very high esteem. Um, our women are highly respected and highly regarded for the ability, the capacity to navigate a spirit from the spirit realm into this physical one. Um, and we are all here because of a woman. Um, as a species, we are dependent on the females of repopulating us, right? So if it wasn't for a woman, we would not be here. And as Indigenous people, as First Nations people, we understood the power that women hold within them. Um, yet through years and years and years and years of colonization and assimilation policies, uh, we've seen the traditional role of women in our societies being downplayed and downgraded. Um, and we see our women going from being sacred beings to being highly victimized. Our indigenous women are one of the highest groups of people that will be victimized in today's society here in Canada. And there have been studies and reports and investigations in this ongoing tragedy that is happening within our indigenous community of our women and our girls being taken from us and what's come back is that there's a genocide happening towards us so these past several episodes have been discussing of how did we start from having our women held in such high esteem to being so extremely overrepresented in missing and murdered cases here in Canada and it hasn't been a fun conversation I'll be the first to admit that it's been a very hard and heavy conversation to talk about what has happened to our women and how our women got to the state that they are in now um, and we've discussed cases of our little girls going missing our school women going missing our mothers going missing and the reality that when our women go missing, they're often victim shamed. Um, their lifestyle choices, the things they did to maintain are often highlighted in their own cases against the people that have perpetrated crimes against them. And it's, it's very unfair. It's very unjust. But pretending these things aren't happening hasn't been very beneficial to us as a society either, right? So our last conversation, we discussed the Highway of Tears along with our LGBTQ2 plus community and how they also need to be included into the Missing Murdered Indigenous Women's Girl movement. Um, so recapping, the Highway of Tears is the stretch of Highway 16 reaching from Prince George to Prince Rupert in northern British Columbia and a whole whopping number of cases of missing and murdered Girls and women have been reported from this corridor of highway uh, throughout the decades. Many citizens in this area, along with the loved ones of those who have been affected by the highway disappearances, have pleaded for resources being made available to safely transfer people from the rural to the urban areas as um, that stretch of highway is very isolated and not many resources are available for the people who do live 
within the First Nations communities that border the highway. So we see many people having to leave the reserve, the home community, to venture off into the urban areas, which um, often leads to them going missing because sometimes they do have to hitchhike because of lack of resources. The Highway of Tears has become kind of a feeding ground for predators, if you will, given how rural and isolated the area is and how highly concentrated the animal population is. So um, remains have gone missing of women because it's believed that animals may have played a part in uh, disposing of these their remains, their bodies, unfortunately. So after decades and decades and decades of women and girls and even an entire family going missing throughout the Highway of Tears. Uh, finally, in 2017, um, uh, three bus routes were made available for people to access on that stretch of highway. And it was reported, I think, in the first year of their service, over 5,000 people utilize these services. 5,000 people. So that really demonstrates how much of a need this bus route was for the people in that area to help keep them safe, right? So it may have took over 50 years of women and girls falling victims to predators on the highway, but at least the services are finally available to protect them now, um, to protect other women and girls from hopefully not meeting the same fate as the women and girls that who have disappeared along that highway have met. And then last week we also discussed the roles of our two-spirited people, um, are more commonly referred to as today as LGBTQ2 plus community. Um, so our two-spirited people played a very valuable and sacred role in our societies. Uh, they taught us about balance and have a unique gift of perceiving the world around them through the lens of both male and female perspectives as they embody both energies. Uh, and traditionally, from a historical point of view, we as a people really didn't care about who you were attracted to. <laughs> that was really just your own thing that you owned it. Nobody made a big deal about it. It was more of you were identified by the role you wanted to play in society as men and women had very defined roles. But if you were uh, physically born a male and felt your calling was with the women, then you were treated as a woman and vice versa. If you were physically born a female, but your calling was to be with the men, then you would be treated like a man in society. So again... <laughs> Who you were dating really had nothing to do with how people treated you historically. And these people that had that gift to walk in both worlds, as we call it, walk with the males and walk with the females, were are very sacred in our culture. And we discussed greatly of stories of our women going missing and disappearing and being over-marginalized and underrepresented. Um, this is also happening to our two-spirited people as they are just as marginalized, if not even more marginalized than our women. Their fight for their missing and murdered 
community is that much more complicated because they're not only trying to advocate for the people in their community that have gone missing that have turned up murder but also fighting to be included in these issues uh, inclusion is such a huge thing um, they are often skipped over in so many instances because we need to change the narrative as they are closely affected by the issues of missing murdered indigenous women and girls and the acronym of MMIWG has been extended to include MMIWG2S as well. And while we are on this topic of Two-Spirited, I wanted to share some words from my friend Russell McCauley um, from Saskatoon. And he writes, the, two, the term Two-Spirit, 2S, emerged in the 1990s to highlight indigenous queer trans experience. Two-spirit people have an important place in indigenous societies. Systematic racism through violent ongoing colonialism connects directly to the identified and measured inequalities outcomes for indigenous people, women, girls, and two-spirited people, consistently at higher rates than non-indigenous people. Unfortunately, we do not have much info in regards to national statistics on two-spirited mental or physical health, but we can confirm rates of death, suicides, addictions, and two-spirited people have not decreased under forced colonialism. It is important to celebrate success, resiliency, and love within Indigenous history and cultures, but we need to do more together. In terms of advocacy, education, and support, if we are going to authentically address the racial and social outcomes that MMIWG2S face each and every day. And he says, I share this with good intentions, the love hope of Megan Gallagher, as well as everyone missing and murdered, indigenous women, girls, grandmothers, mothers, sisters, and two-spirited people and their families. Hi, hi. So when I came across Russell's words, I thought they were very valuable to what we are talking about today. As Russell, he does identify as two-spirited, so he can speak directly from an authentic point of view of what it feels to live in society as a two-spirited person and the oppression that is met with that um, and the reality that yes our women have suffered at the hands of colonialism um, and assimilative policies but so have our two-spirited people and he shared this post in honor of his dear friend Megan Gallagher who is been missing for quite some time in Saskatoon as well. Uh, she is a mother and her family has not given up the hope of her hopefully one day returning to them. It's a very tragic story as all our missing and murdered Indigenous women, girls, two-spirited are. But if we don't talk about it and if we don't fight to keep their memories alive then who's going to right the indigenous connection show hey everyone welcome back to the indigenous connections radio show i'm your host randy lynn and today we are on our seventh episode of the okamawa squeo series uh which loosely translates into english as boss lady um i labeled it so because in our culture, indigenous women are pretty much the boss. 
um, but yet the outside reality is that our women are highly victimized and highly targeted by predators and there is a reason for this and it's because society in general have really put a very low value on the life of indigenous women unfortunately so we have been talking about this happening and the stories of the women affected by this and the stories of the families and the loved ones affected by this issue of what we refer to as the missing and murdered indigenous women and girls and two-spirited epidemic um so these past few episodes have been very difficult but very necessary um change doesn't come from ignorance And change doesn't come from being comfortable. So last week I said I'm not going to apologize for making you uncomfortable. And I didn't mean that in a negative way like I'm trying to attack you. I meant it like the only way we are going to try to change this world is by realizing our truths as a society and feeling uncomfortable to the point where we get off our butts and we actively try to do something to change our society, not only for a better future for ourselves, but for our brothers and sisters on a global scale. And our children, especially our children. We don't want our children to grow up in a society where they are going to be victimized because of the color of their skin, because of the cultures they practice, because of the languages they speak, because they are uniquely special and different and we want to embrace these uniquenesses we don't want our children to be stereotyped and harmed because they are proud of their cultural identities right so our history as a country has exemplified the ignorance and exemplified how ignorance is bliss if you will ignoring the issue that has just allowed it to fester throughout the years, ignoring the fact that our women are going missing, that our girls are being targeted, has just created a breeding ground for more and more to happen to them. And following that, so much misinformation and understandings have followed, so much. And like I said earlier, go check out any comment section on social media in regards to First Nations people, and you will see the direct anger and hate and frustration and just lack of education and misunderstanding by Canadian citizens. And some of the things they say, I'm like, oh my gosh, it's so harmful. And as an Indigenous person, we kind of have to have this golden rule of don't read the comments, don't read the comments, don't read the comments. For the sake of your own sanity and health and well-being, do not read the comments. Uh, Of course, some of us get curious and we go and we read the comments and leave with a broken heart because we've realized how low of an opinion so many people still have of us as Indigenous people. But to counteract that, We as Indigenous people also have found our own voice through social media. 
um, where many people have voiced their negative opinions, we finally have a platform to voice our own voices, just talk for ourselves, and just share our truth. Um, as many of us have been silenced and ignored for a very long timing time. So I do see some changes happening as we are finally finding platforms to express ourselves from. Um, so we advocate for those who have been oppressed and sharing all their stories of injustices to follow. Um, just like I've been doing with this show these past few episodes. The reality that when an indigenous person goes missing or is a victim of a crime, the justice system seems to lack resources, concern, and overall attention to the issue. Uh, perpetrators of crimes against indigenous people are often given lighter sentences, and empathy for the perpetrator is often portrayed in the crime, um, in the case, in the courtroom, as many of the stories I shared throughout these episodes amplify that, right? Uh, victim, victim shaming is a tactic highly utilized in, the case, in these cases. We look at the case of Cindy Gladue, and I think it reported over 50 times they, they called her a derogatory term during her murder trial. They literally put her down while they were trying her murderer. It's crazy. Um, where op on the opposite spectrum, when we see indigenous people as the perpetrators of crime, uh, I feel we see the justice system coming out at full force. We see the media um, posting their pictures all over the screen. And in cases of indigenous people being the, re the perpetrators of crime, I'm not saying we aren't, but when we see this and family members speak up and try to stick up for the, not stick up, but ask for empathy that uh, this person is dealing with mental health issues, this person is dealing with addictions or loss or grief, and they kind of stared themselves down a really dark road. Um, we're often accused of playing the victim card or get over it or uh, you did the time, you did the crime, you do the time, you're, and then these insults just increase and increase and increase. And I've had personal experiences with this where my cousin did show up on a crime stoppers report and the, the hateful comments that followed, I'm not saying he was innocent and he did end up, um, turning himself in. But the things people were saying about him just by looking at his picture and really just putting him down to nothing. When I know my cousin personally, I know him as a human being, and I know how hard his life has been, and I'm not trying to justify the things he's done. But I just asked for it. I don't know. It's confusing. It's frustrating. Because when... A non-Indigenous person goes out and commits crimes against people. They're having a bad day. They are experiencing mental health issues. This, this, and this to kind of ask for empathy and compassion. Well, an Indigenous person commits a crime and they are nothing but complete trash and evil. 
And it's hard. It's hard on the spirit to see people you love and cared about portrayed in such a negative way constantly. Um, uh, And yes, I'm letting a lot of my own personal emotion come out in this episode. But what can I do? What can I do? I just, it's so confusing. It's so frustrating and so hurtful. Um, So take a quick break. (laughs) Enough of me venting. And we'll continue our conversation afterwards. The Indigenous Connection Show. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Indigenous Connections radio show. I'm your host, Randy Lynn. And we are in the seventh episode of our Okamawa Esquayo series, Boss Lady, loosely translated into English. And our last segment, I kind of went off about um, injustices of between non-indigenous indigenous people as they uh, meet their days in court and i'm not saying indigenous people don't commit crimes because they do i'll be first one to admit that but it's hard to deny that systematical racism does play a part that governs the laws of justice and what we want is just equal justice for our people and we want equal concern and equal media coverage when our women and our girls go missing compared to other people who don't identify as indigenous get. Um, and we don't want to be shamed for the life we live when we are targeted and harmed by predators. We don't want to be on trial during our own murder trials, right? Um, and... I've talked about this many times before. When a person is living a high-risk lifestyle, when they are involved in addictions and consumption of substances, it's often because that is what's helping them keep them alive for that day. No one goes to that life um, intentionally. It's often the reality that they're leaving even something even harder behind And as a result of self-medicating and trying to cope with what has happened to them, they often end up in these very um, high-risk lifestyles. And that doesn't excuse anyone for inflicting harm on anyone because of the lifestyle they lead. Um, But moving forward, I'm a strong believer in if we want people to respect us, then we need to show them what that respect looks like. And you should see me when I'm presenting to (laughs) a group of indigenous kids and they want to roll their eyes at me. Oh man, I go off on them. (laughs) And it's not because I'm angry with them. It's just that tough love of if we don't respect ourselves, if we don't respect our cultures, then how do we expect anyone else to respect us? It has to start with us. But saying that we also have to keep in mind that we are fighting against centuries of oppression colonization and discriminatory laws that were designed to break us but regardless we are trying so on the topic of discriminatory laws and systematical racism in canada we have to look no further than the indian act and status rights so 
how many of you even know what the heck the Indian Act is? Uh, it's 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 a big piece of legislation that governs indigenous people. It's not a fun document to read. It's kind of like, wow, really? Wow. When If you ever do get the chance to read it, you're like, this is so outdated. Anywho, um, so let's begin with what status and treaty people are. So status people are recognized by the Canadian government as registered status Indians, meaning they get the benefits of education, health care, etc. All those things were stereotyped against. Where treaty people um, often, we, there's a misunderstanding. Treat, we are all treaty people. So when we say treaty people, if you are a Canadian citizen, technically you are a treaty person because you are benefiting from those treaties that were signed, the number of treaties here in Canada that were made as an agreement to share the land between Indigenous and non-Indigenous people. Um, so if you live on any plot of land in Canada, you are benefiting from the treaty, meaning you are a treaty person, whereas status people are registered with the government and recognized as a Indian. I use quotations, but that's what they refer to us still as Indians uh, legally through the government. So fun fact, not all First Nations people are entitled to be status and benefit from status rights. And just because you're Indigenous does not mean you automatically qualify for status rights. One must apply for their rights and provide proof of their lineage that their parents and grandparents were status. <laughs> As an Indigenous person, it's like our worst nightmare to have to do a family tree. <laughs> we're all like, why, why? Because... We all, a lot of us come from families of nine, ten plus kids and nine, ten plus kids there and then a hundred cousins there. By the time I was born, I think I had like 35 cousins already. Uh, anyways, off topic. <laughs> so, and even if someone's parent is status, that still does not qualify you to be status. So there's a lot of restrictions to actually even be recognized as a status Indian in this country, even if you are indigenous, your parents, your parent is status. There's a lot of different things, a lot of different, what are those called? Um, those things that horses jump over. <laughs> oh my gosh. Pretend you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> hurdles holy jeez there's a lot of hurdles that people have to actually jump over just to be qualified and recognized as a status indian in this country um and to be honest to figure out if you're even status it's a huge math equation um and this math equation is actually designed to eventually do away with status rights regardless that these rights were to be honored for time immemorial. And you may have heard this famous quote, as long as the sun shines, the grass grows, and the rivers flow, uh, it's actually supposed to be as long as the waters flow, implying as long as indigenous people are being born, as they were 
referring to the water as the water inside of a woman as she's pregnant. And when she's ready to give birth, we say her water breaks, right? And that's what they are implying by saying as long as the waters flow. Uh, anyways, so the government has worked very hard to kind of do away with status rights, even though technically it's supposed to be our birthright as indigenous people as agreed in the treaties for all of us to coexist here on this land and previously during treaty signing and the establishment of status rights it started out as long as you were of indigenous ancestry but of course there was loopholes to that and then amendments were made that you had to register to be status, um, eliminating a lot of people's opportunity to become status. And now even if you sign treaty and you could prove you're a direct descendant of someone who did, again, you weren't guaranteed to have status rights for the rest of your life. So the way you could lose your rights is if you decide to attend post-secondary education if you wanted to vote in federal elections or you wanted to join the armed forces to fight in the wars. Because Indians, as identified by the government, were not allowed to do any of these things. We weren't allowed to vote. We weren't allowed to fight in the war and we weren't allowed to attend post-secondary education without sacrificing our right to status. Um, as we weren't, aren't, I should say, identified as Canadian citizens. Reality is, is we are governed under the Indian Act. So if we go to court, rather than be uh, governed by the Canadian Charter Rights of, Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, uh, the Indian Act actually comes into play and governs us. So... Many indigenous people actually sacrificed their rights to go fight in war, to go protect this country, because they knew that uh, the treaties that were signed would not be honored at all if we became a conquered nation. So they were ready and willing to sacrifice their status rights, their claim to their life, their not livelihood, but their nationhood as an indigenous person in this country to fight for this country, to protect this country, to die for this country. Um, but they could only do that if they renounced their Indian status and became a Canadian citizen, if you will. Now, adding on to that, there was one other way you could lose your rights. And this is crazy. Okay, so you could lose your rights if you were a Indigenous woman who chose to marry a non-Indigenous man. Uh, now, here's the kicker. <laughs> if you were an Indigenous man who married a non-Indigenous woman, guess what? You kept your rights and your non-Indigenous wife became status. When the Indian Act was created in 1867, the original wording defines an Indian as any male, underlined male, person of Indian blood. So they knew exactly what they were doing. 
And after hearing this, how can you deny that there isn't racially and sex sexist legislative against our people? So we're going to get a bit more into the Indian Act um, after the break. The Indigenous Connection Show. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Indigenous Connections Radio Show. I'm your host, Randy Lynn, and we are on our seventh episode of the Okamawa Squeo series. And we are talking the sexist and discriminatory legislative called the Indian Act. So just before the break, we talked about status rights and how not everyone qualifies for status rights. And even if you have status rights, guess what? There's no guarantee that you get to keep them for the rest of your life, as there's many, many um, barriers to claiming your status rights. And there are many um, provisions to be able to keep your status rights. So like I said, if you wanted to go to post-secondary education, you had to forfeit your status rights. If you wanted to vote in a federal election, you had to forfeit your status rights. If you wanted to fight in war to protect this country, you had to forfeit your status rights because we are technically not considered Canadian citizens as status people in this country. And because of that, um, we don't get the same rights and freedoms that non-status people do, I guess. And on adding on to that, if you are an indigenous woman who is born status and decides to go marry a non-status man, doesn't even matter if he's not indigenous, just non-status, guess what? You got your rights taken away from you. And then on the flip side of exemplifying the sexism in this legislative is that if you were a status man who married a non-status woman, guess what? She became status and all your children after that became status. So how is that fair? How is that fair? Um, And this actually happened to my auntie. She went and married a non-status man and she had to forfeit her rights just to marry him. And their son uh, grew up not being status. It's crazy. The Indian Act clearly puts women at a disadvantage because it amplifies status can only be inherited through male lineage, directly opposing matriarchal lineages that many indigenous people followed. Going back to our first and second episode, I talked about how indigenous women were held in very high esteem and reality was we traced our lineage, our family origins, our family names through our women. Um, Many people that follow the clan system, they belong to the clan that their mother belonged to. So this is kind of total opposite of how we originally did things. And again, the patriarch forcing its ways on us as a people, amplifying the dismantling of the matriarch system where women were originally the decision makers and leaders, the Indian Act now denied women any leadership roles or power in the band system, so reserves. So with the establishment of the Indian Act, the band system became of where we elect leaders, where leaders weren't chosen or they weren't 
born into these roles as we traditionally chose our leaders. Now we had to elect them through the band system. And the Indian Act clearly specifies that, okay, women aren't allowed to run for leadership roles. Again, uh, total opposite of the way we operated for so long in our societies, putting women in such high esteem and getting the counsel of women before making any important decisions for the people. And then to add to the stripping of a woman's dignity even further, through the Indian Act, women were also denied the right to possess marital property, meaning in cases of divorce, women were pushed out of the home. And in the case of death, where the woman is widowed, it was literally left to the discretion of the Indian agent to decide if the widow was deserving of her late husband's property. Um, and furthermore, she could be pushed right off the reserve because of all of this. Um, amendments to the Indian Act were made in 1951 following the Second World War. And this began removing bans on cultural practices. Um, so ceremonies, dances, etc. had to go underground before this. So yeah, there's another fun fact about the Indian Act. It made being an Indian illegal. We weren't allowed to do powwows. We weren't allowed to do ceremonies. We weren't allowed to be ourselves and practice our ways and conduct our spirituality without being jailed for it. And 1951, they're like, okay, I guess you can do your Indian stuff now. That was 70 years ago. 70 years ago is how long we've legally been able to practice our culture. Oh, I guess that's another reason why I do this show. Um, and with these amendments in 1951, uh, indigenous women were finally granted the ability to vote in ban-run elections. And I want to emphasize ban-run elections um, because we weren't allowed to vote federally um, without sacrificing our rights. And this was until 1960. So again, going back, I said, if you, we as indigenous people, as status people wanted to vote in federal elections, we had to sacrifice our status rights, our inherent rights to the land. Um, <laughs> it still boggles my mind that the original people of this land were literally not allowed to participate in federal elections. They weren't allowed to participate in picking the leaders until 60 years ago. Uh, <laughs> and they wonder why we're crazy. <laughs> in a country in a country that prides itself on the freedom and the right to vote for its citizens. But I guess that was kind of left in the brackets. But only if you're a non-status Indian are you allowed the right to vote. Um, so we finally see the first woman being elected to leadership in 1954 through the established band system. And her name was Elsie Marie Knott. Uh, she actually became the chief of Mud Lake Ojibwe Reserve now known as Curve Lake First Nations in Ontario, and she held her position of power for 14 years. Many women have followed suit since then, um, and I think this is just a beautiful example of us reclaiming our matriarch 
skill roles and our original roles as leaders in this country um, in our for our people. But I'm still kind of like, uh, kind of kicking myself over the whole election thing. And just the reality that it feeds into that as First Nations people, we weren't even deemed to be at par with the rest of Canadian society until the 1960s. We weren't even allowed to pick the people who made the decisions for us. Oh, Anyways, let's take a quick break. There's still lots more to talk, lots more to spill the tea over on the Indian egg. The Indigenous Connection Show. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Indigenous Connections Radio Show. I'm your host, Randy Lynn, and we are on the seventh episode of the Okamawa Square series. And we are talking the Indian Act. I can't believe I almost forgot to talk about the Indian Act, considering how sexist and racist it is. And it really exemplifies the systematical racism that Indigenous women face in this country, in our current society. And... The reality that we are not just up against predators that harm us, but we are up against legislation that governs us, that really dishonors our rights as human beings. Outraged by the gender discrimination of the Indian Act, many Indigenous women fought to regain their status rights as they may have lost it through very unjust and sexist discriminatory policies. One of the earliest activists against the Indian Act and all the harm it created against women was Mary Two Acts Early. And this was then followed by the Supreme Court case of Yvonne Bedard and Jeanette Cabaret-Laval in 1973, which both women had lost their rights because of marrying a non-status individual, meaning their children could not have status, meaning they could not have status, meaning they were pretty much kicked out of their home, their reserve. And can you guess how the court ruled? That's right, the women lost their case. And the court ruled in the favor that the provisions tying a woman's status to her husband did not discriminate against women. Even though status men kept their status if they married out. Eight years following this case, in 1981, the United Nations Human Rights Commission ruled that Canada had violated Article 27 of the International Convent of Civil and Political Rights in the case of Sandra Lovelace Nicholas, a Wallisogic woman, sorry, I can't pronounce that, who had lost her status through marriage. The government had prevented Sandra from returning to her home community because according to the Indian Act, she had married out and was no longer considered to be a band member. The efforts of women like two acts early, Bedard, Lavelle, and Lovelace Nicholas were central to the revisions of the Indian Act that took place in 1985. So I'm going to read an article to you in regards to the 1985 amendment of the Indian Act, as I feel this is really, really important for Indigenous people in Canada as and the women. Uh, in 1985, Bill C-31 amended the Indian Act to remove gender discrimination and bring it in line with the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. The amendments allows a woman who married out and those who, by other means, lost their Indian, Indian status 
and accompanying rights and benefits to apply for the restoration of their status and rights and also allows their children to apply for registration for status Indians. The act no longer requires women to follow their husbands into or out of status. Since the implementation of the amendment to the Indian Act in 1985, the number of registered Indians has more than doubled from approximately 360,000 in 1985 to more than 778,000 in 2007. The increase is a result of births, moreover deaths, as well as though reinstated Indian status. Further, Bill C-31 created two categories of Indian registration that have had con consequences on the number of people entitled to status rights. The first, known as Section 6-1, applies when both parents are or were entitled to registration. The second is further broken down into subsections that differ based on how status is passed down. The second known as Section 6.2, applies when one parent is entitled to registration under 6.1. Status cannot be transferred if one parent is registered under 6.2. In short, after two generations of intermarriage with non-status parents, children would no longer be eligible for status. This is known as the second-generation cutoff rule. Moreover, in order for a child to be registered, both the mother and father's names must be included on the birth certificate. If the father's name is not included, he is assumed to not to be not status. In such a situation, children born to women registered under Section 6.2 are not eligible for status. The amendments therefore significantly limit the ability to transfer status to one's children. So if you were picking up anything I said there, I know it's a bunch of jibber-jabber, what they're saying is Bill C-31 of 1985 reinstated those peoples who lost their status, be it through voting, through post-secondary education, through fighting war, are women marrying out, were allowed to reclaim their status. But the kicker is that only two generations to follow are technically allowed to be status. So insert that math equation I was talking about. So what they're saying is there's now subcategories of being status, 6-1 and 6-2. Um, so a 6-1 means their full status, meaning their children automatically get status. Um, if they are 6-2, their children may get status up to 18, or they may have it for the rest of their life. Depending on who they marry, their children from that point may not have status, so grandchildren. Um, I actually, when I was born, I fell under the category of 6-2, as my mother is a status Indian, 6-1. But she married my father. Well, they're not married. They're common-law. <laughs> Marriage is a four-letter word in my house. Anywho, common-law. Um, my father, non-status man, meaning that I have status rights, but my children won't have status rights. And that's what my sister is actually experiencing because she had children with a Métis man and her children will be status under her until they're 18. But after 18, then they don't have no more status rights. And so my sister's grandchildren will not be status. My mom's grandchildren are only till they're 18. So yeah, sure, they gave us back our status rights, 
but then they're like but we're only going to give it back for a couple generations and then after that so what i see the government doing here is playing the long game right they're like let's let's give them back let's give them what they want but in the long run we get what we want and that's finally doing away with indian status and registered indians and indigenous people um luck Luckily, luckily, I was able to up my status from 6'2 to a 6'1 through amendments through my band, Big Stone Cree, where I could I applied to be recognized as a 6'1. Um, and I'm so thankful that they had this program for me to go through because now when I do have children, regardless if I have children for status man or non-status man, my children will technically get rights because I am have up my status from 6'2 to 6'1, <laughs> right, right, um, I used to make jokes, and I'd be like, sorry, I only date 6'1s, <laughs> because I was so concerned about my future children having status rights, um, yeah, and st being status and non-status has really kind of pitted us against each other as well, and it's kind of been a way of proving how Indian you are, Again, feeding into that lateral violence that we first learned from the residential schools. Um, oh, I'm better because I'm this, or I'm different because I'm this. And unfortunately, there's been a very strong misunderstanding that if you're not status, then you're not Indian, which is not true. Like I said, it's just a big math equation of who gets to be status and who doesn't get to be. We see further amendments of the Indian Act being made in 2011 and then again in 2017, which really just involves that they are, um, it was grandmothers that were stepping up saying, I want my grandchildren to have status rights, that this, again, is not fair. So with the amendments of 2011 and 2017, we see another generation of children being allowed to have status rights. Given the time limit, we're almost near the end of our session. I really can't go into too much details about it, but um, this is still an ongoing case for many Indigenous people, especially Indigenous women, as we fight for the rights of our children and our grandchildren. Uh, First Nations women in Canada have long been disadvantaged and marginalized by the Indian Act through the leadership of women like Mary Two Axe Early, Yvonne Bedard, Jeanette Colborough Laval, Sandra Lovelace Nichols, and Sharon McIver. The Act has become more inclusive and fairer. However, the Indian Act is still problematic for many Indigenous people because it continues to define Indian status. While some indigenous people believe that Indian status has a legitimate place in federal law, others give it less value because status is legal identity defined and imposed by the federal government rather than indigenous nations by themselves. So again, what that's saying is that the government's telling us who is Indian enough to be Indian and who isn't, regardless of who our parents are, what our culture is, and again, pitting us against each other and feeling us with feelings of insignificant and inferior because of my blood quantum are the fact that I'm not a card-carrying Indian. Um, and I often think about that in my own reality. 
as if you ever see me in person, I'm, I'm very light-skinned. I have red curly hair. I carry a lot of my father's physical traits, but yet I was raised with my culture. I identify as an indigenous person, even though physically I have very strong European traits. Um, if I didn't have a status card to be like, yo, look, I'm First Nations, how many people would have actually believed that I was First Nations growing up? How many people would have actually cared to hear what I had to say because of the way I look and the person I am on the inside are very different. Um, just some food for thought of laws here in Canada against Indigenous women. The Indigenous Connection Show. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Indigenous Connections radio show. I want to thank you for joining us for our seventh episode on the Okamawa Square series, where we discussed um, in detail the Indian Act and the systematical racism that comes from that uh, and the sexism that comes from that as well. So next week we are continuing on our Okamawa Square series, Boss Lady series. As I mentioned before, this is a huge, 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 huge topic, but we got nothing but time, so let's dive right into it. So next week, I'd like to pick up where we left off in regards to the Red Dress campaign and how we as a people are working towards healing ourselves and bringing memorial for the women and girls and two-spirited people we have lost through the missing murdered indigenous woman epidemic. So thank you for joining me again. I hope you guys have a great week. Take care of yourselves. You matter. And that's the Indigenous Connection Show with Randy Lynn. I like to give credit to A Tribe Called Red for their track sisters that we used in our intro.